because he was successful at it, he had been asked by others to help them manage their option trades. And, uh, and he was approached one year by a group from one of the Southern states who asked if he would manage a trading account using options for a group of their investors. They said that they would handle all the administrative. His role would be to basically be the floor trader. That was something he had done successfully for many years. Uh, I was introduced to him by uh, two of my acquaintances who I'd worked with on other projects. One of them had been the head of one of the biggest clearing firms in the options field and later headed up one of the major options uh, brokerage firms. And the other one had been an officer of the Midwest uh, Stock Exchange. Uh, and uh, both of them knew this man. They spoke very highly of him. He was well known at the Chicago Board of Options as a very good floor trader and a man of good integrity. Uh, he had agreed to cooperate with those people. And uh, if they brought in a group of investors, he would trade the account. He felt that um, that should be a conservative trading strategy. With options, you can uh, do a number of different things. Some of the strategies are very um, relatively safe. I mean, they're, they're certainly no more risky than any stock trade. Uh, others of them are inherently risky. He would avoid those inherently risky uh, procedures with this particular group. And so they put together a group, um, they formed a company, they made him the acting president of it, but his role was simply to do the floor trading and they handled the investors as well as all communications with the investors. They also um, took over responsibility for dealing with the clearing firms through whom he secured his lines of credit that he needed to do this type of work. And so uh, they reported, they told him basically what they did, but uh, he did not handle that side of things, just the floor trading. Um, he was quite successful in this program. They produced profits every month for a, a period of time. Everyone was happy. Investors were happy reportedly. And um, while that was going on, he had another group who were more speculative. They were willing to assume greater risk in hopes of greater return, but theirs was much more volatile. And, uh, and their accounts um, incurred some losses, which was predictable because of the type of work he was, type of trade they were doing. They were higher risk trades. They'd either pay off very well or, or not. Uh, he had cautioned the folks who brought him the more conservative group um, that they had to be especially careful that the clearing firms, which gave him his lines of credit, would never commingle the two. And they had told him they had assurances to that effect and had made that arrangement to keep them separated. As the losses mounted on the high risk portfolio, um, he continued to make profits on the conservative portfolio until one day the clearing firm said the losses on the one side had grown too high and they were now going to collapse the account and close it out at a loss. In the process, 
they closed out the, the conservative account, matched up losses against its gains and caused a loss there. They shut down the program, uh, notified investors. And when he found out that they, and investors in the conservative side had been hurt, uh, he was horrified and he communicated with a number of them said some way, somehow he would help them make that back because that should never have happened under their arrangement. And so it felt very bad about it. Uh, there was a suit filed by some of those investors uh, to apparently to avoid liability on their part, people who handled the investor communications went into court and testified that they um, had, that they, they basically denied liability. They basically cast the blame on the man who signed as president, the floor trader. And um, ultimately criminal charges were brought. He felt he had a very good defense because he had been forthright with people and had done everything he could to, to uphold his end of the a bargain. He hired one of the most prominent criminal defense attorneys in the country, a man who had handled some very large um, security matters in the past. Yeah, hold on a minute. Jim, hold it a minute. Well, yeah, sorry for the interruption. Um, he um, hired this very high expensive firm to defend him. And um, it was, however, as I later saw when he came to me with this whole situation and I got a transcript of the trial, I, I was um, disappointed at the handling at the trial level. Um, and, uh, and in any event, it resulted in his being convicted. They came to sentencing and because this involved a uh, group of investors, it was treated as a, um, a fraud under the wire and mail uh, fraud statutes. And, uh, and because it involved a financial group, it was treated as a financial institution, like it was a bank or an insurance company. And so um, it, it qualified for enhanced uh, penalties. And he was facing the potential of several years in a federal work camp. He uh, contacted me uh, because I had been recommended by some of my other clients and I agreed to help write a brief on the, on the penalty portion, arguing that hedge funds are, are basically um, not the same as a bank. Um, they in fact, um, well, I, I don't wanna get into all the technical aspects, but there, there was a good argument on why that should not apply. And Rich, just to interject real quick, it's fair to say that you've established a number of hedge funds over the years? I had, uh, in the course of my work over a 30 year period of time when I worked in the securities field, I had set up eight broker dealer firms, eight hedge funds, two investment advisory firms, and had represented the issuers of securities in many, many cases. I think I wrote the security documents in over 100, 100 securities offerings, and I reviewed offerings for broker dealer clients in other cases, up to I think 250 total transactions over the years. So, and you might yes, I have a lot, a lot of experience in the field, but I'm not a criminal attorney. You're not a yeah. criminal attorney. You might also yeah. just share, if you will, the number of boards of directors that you have been on over your career. 
Yeah, the the um, when you're doing venture capital investing, it's common for a representative of the broker or the investors to be asked to join a board of directors or work with the board as a board observer. And over the years I've been on, I think as of that date anyway, when all these things happened, I had been on boards of over 80 companies and probably 15 or 20 nonprofits. So I, I had a lot of board experience and, and I did a lot of uh, coaching and counseling to the companies that we raised money for. It was all part of the process of building those companies toward an eventual sale. Right. So yes, I had a lot of experience in that field. And, um, but again, not, not in the criminal law field. We, we shied away from that. We, we, dealt with, uh, we dealt with situations where um, our main focus was on uh, disclosure, disclosure rules and following and complying with those rules. Um, so anyway, I did write the brief. Uh, Court of Appeals considered it. Uh, they did make a ruling against us on that point. They did find that the particular statute had been uh, written in such a way that it was intended to cover any kind of situation involving a group of investors, and so hedge funds were covered. So we made we gave our best shot to it, but that didn't work in this case. And he ended up serving, I think, three or four years in a, in a federal uh, camp. Right. But I, I felt throughout this, if if the court would have, first of all, I, I really didn't think a prosecutor ever should have prosecuted that. But um, since he did, I, it would have been nice to have seen a more robust defense at the, at the trial level. Um, you and know, was this was this in Wisconsin, Rich, or was this out of out of state? No, that was uh, that was a Illinois case. Illinois, and was it a federal case? Yes, I since it was federal, I dealt with the federal aspect. Right. Yeah. I mean, you go back in time where you did clerk work for someone, did you not, of prominence yeah. in Wisconsin? I, I did. Right out of law school, I served one year for uh, law clerk of a federal judge. We were at the trial level, but at that point in time, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago also had a uh, vacancy. And so periodically, because he, my judge was one of those highly respected judges in the entire Seventh Circuit and had been uh, mentioned many times as a potential nominee to that court or, and also to the US Supreme Court, uh, he was himself a past Wisconsin Supreme Court justice. Um, they had him serve as a temporary Court of Appeals judge. So I actually clerked there also part of the time. Mm -hmm. and, and did you not early, early days of your career um, have some experience in the criminal, criminal defense field, at least on a few early cases? Yeah, very early in my career. Uh, it's very typical for judges to um, take young attorneys who are just starting out and give them some experiencing uh, experience by giving them uh, what are referred to as pro bono appointments, which means you basically serve for little or no compensation for somebody who has not got the funds to hire an attorney. And so you, you agree to provide service. In my case, it was at a reduced rate. And um, so I did that in several cases. Um, and I had a few walk-in clients where I handled executives who had white collar, you know, they were minor 
local offenses, not serious offenses, and they were not federal, they were in state. Two of the appointments were in the federal courts. The judges there knew me because I had clerked there. And so I'd gotten a couple of appointments down there. But, um, but you know, that was very early in my career. That was back in 1970, maybe 71, 72. Right. Um, so it was a long time ago. I did do 10 years of uh, trial work, uh, but that was all commercial litigation, contract disputes primarily, and breach of warranty claims, um, and, and not in the criminal field. So I've totaled, in all, I've, I've handled maybe six cases, but they were quite early in my career. And is it is it not something along your career that you were involved in a in a local Milwaukee TV show that you did with frequency for quite some time? I did. Um, I, I one of the my very the very first law firm that I was with uh, before I established my own practice um, had uh, some clients that worked in the international field, and I and I was handling uh, primarily mergers and acquisitions and anything having to do with setting up companies, dissolving companies, merging companies, or breaking them up again. And I dealt primarily in the tax aspects of that. I had met a, a fellow who was the head of the World Affairs Council of Milwaukee. He invited me to appear on his, on his uh, television program once a month that um, would interview foreign dignitaries. We had diplomats, uh, ambassadors, State Department officials, Defense Department officials, and representatives of foreign governments from all over the country. I served as program director for four or five years and appeared on the television program maybe, I'd say 20 times over a period of five years. And then I served a year as the exec, as the chief, uh, the chief executive of that um, particular World Affairs Council um, I, over the years, I've met Henry Kissinger, I've met the U.S. Ambassador to China, I've met um, the gentleman who left the State Department to advocate the creation of a missile defense shield that came to be known as Star Wars. I met a lot of very interesting people. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very excellent. So the case that you were highlighting, uh, based on your own personal thoughts, feelings, and experience, do you feel that the individual... Um, was properly um, um, prosecuted as well as sentenced, or do you feel? Well, I, I felt, you know, and again, I, I felt that the worst you could really say of him is that he probably should have checked what they were telling the investors, but, but you know, that's more of a negligence. That certainly wasn't an intent to deceive. He never had that. He never intended to violate the law. Um, the fact is, he, he, his skill, his expertise was floor trading, and he, he would never have put a group of investors together himself or handled the communications with them or any of that. That was something he got into only because this group asked him to do the trading. Mm -hmm. So I felt if I were a prosecutor, I would not have prosecuted that case. Um, you know, People might have had a civil claim for negligence, but I did not see that as an intentional fraud situation. And um, so I wouldn't have brought the case if I were the prosecutor. Um, and I did feel that he should have been acquitted. Uh, I felt the sentence was too harsh. Right. You know, probation would have been appropriate, I think. In the, and, and, and I speak with some experience. I was a law clerk on this. I was asked 
I worked on um, opinions on many cases. And when our judge, the judge I worked for sentenced to people, I would go through the sentence report and he would ask my recommendation. And so I had a sense of how judges handled these things, but I felt they were um, rough on him. Sure. And as we know, the key word, as you said, his intent, and that is certainly a significant word in the system. And I might recall that you have an old friend that served in Congress for a number of years that he made it particularly within the past three years when they were working to uh, pass mens rea, which is the, uh, the intent necessary for criminal uh, prosecution. Uh, and, and you may recall your friend goes back 35 years or so ago. Yeah, so, well, you're referring to Jim Sonsenbrenner. Jim and I uh, worked out of the same office for three years. Mm -hmm. I had lunch with him many times. This was back when he was in the state assembly. Uh, he left our firm, he left our office to um, become a state senator and a couple of years later was elected a congressman, served many years in that capacity. And yes, he, he was one who argued for um, maintaining, the, um, maintaining the reliance on that standard, mens rea, which means conscious, conscious, and conscious knowledge of, wrong, of wrongdoing. And let me just back up a little bit. When I went to law school, we were all required to take a course in criminal law. And I remember in, the in that course how they emphasized two basic principles that were the constitutional basis of criminal law in the United States. One is that any crime has to be clearly stated and defined in a statute. And the second is that no crime should carry a prison sentence or a jail sentence unless it is of a character that any ordinary person would know is wrong, like murder, rape, uh, armed robbery. You don't do that for minor process crime. You should not do it. It's not the role of, that's not the appropriate punishment for those situations. And what's happened over the years, as I have seen, even though I don't work in the field of criminal law, I did periodically see people get um, harmed as this man was that we've been talking about. And, um, and, and it's, it's because there, over the years, there have been so many things to which um, incarceration is, is, is handed out as a punishment that it is now virtually impossible for anybody to even make a complete listing of all the crimes at the federal level that can serve the basis of, a, of an incarceration. Um, now, it used to be all of the crime, when the country was founded, we had eight federal crimes, um, piracy, treason, a few others. Now, there are so many, nobody can count them. The Heritage Foundation for several years worked on a study. A um, number of major universities have done studies. They've tried to compile a comprehensive list. Nobody's been able to do it. The things for which you can be prosecuted are buried not just in the 
Title 18, which is one, which is started out as one volume of the United States Code, which was devoted to criminal law. It used to all, they used to all be there. Now they're in regulations, they're in foreign treaties. You can be prosecuted because you did business in another country and the, the other country has a law and you can be prosecuted here under the law from that country. Um, you can violate a regulation. You can be held responsible for what your underlings, your, your uh, subordinates have done. So it's gotten to the point now where there's a, a lot of traps in the law and it's very difficult for anyone to know what is punishable that way unless you've, unless you've really run across it. I've seen people prosecuted under fairly vague statutes that don't clearly define that what they did was a crime. And, and, and unfortunately, I think that has created a situation where prosecutors can virtually prosecute anybody anywhere for anything right. and get a conviction. It's, it's really unfortunate. And I think what Jim tried to do to rein that, that kind of freewheeling approach to things is necessary because it brings us back to our founding principles. Oh, well said, Rich. Absolutely. And there's great clarification pursuant to that. Yeah, the criminal justice system does have a challenge or, 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 or as we know from a man called Harvey Silverglight, who wrote the great book, Three Felonies a Day, that there could be hundreds of thousands of potential violations against an individual, and he doesn't even know it. Would yes, you? I've read that book and he is right. Uh, what happened over the past, uh, over the years um, prior to the election of Trump was that um, the, the Justice Department started going through industry after industry and in effect criminalizing things that had been somewhat ordinary business practices up to that point. A lot of people were caught unawares and prosecuted for things they never thought they were committing crimes by doing. Yes, indeed. Um, any good, any good, uh, any good indictment charge can be created rather uh, simplistically by by a good prosecutor. I use well, the word "good" loosely. There's a, there's an old saying among prosecutors that a good prosecutor could indict a ham sandwich. Exactly. Yeah, quite good at it too. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if you if you could. If you could uh, think of one one specific change that you would love to see in the criminal justice system, does anything come off the top of what your thoughts would tell you that, hey, this would be a viable change that should be instituted? Well, I thought Jim's approach was the right one. I think he argues that you should slim this down at the federal level to those things that are just clearly wrong and, and dangerous to others and uh, eliminate uh, criminal prosecution for a lot of the other things. And you should have very clear statutes and very clear standards. I think that's the way to do it. Um, I, short of, I know there's been various suggestions of other ways to remedy it. Uh, people have suggested allowing suits against the prosecutors. I have mixed feelings about that because um, I think that would be abused by people who are clearly guilty of things. But, um, but, some, but I do think 
if Congress would take charge of it and uh, really go about it with the idea of focusing in on things that are truly in need of, uh, I mean, murder, rape, armed robbery, those are all local crimes anyway. They shouldn't be at the federal level unless they're on federal grounds. Um, and, um, but I think that um, other things where somebody's doing something that on the surface looks like an ordinary business practice, that should be out of bounds. And I think they have to draw narrow some narrow standards as a basis for conviction as a way of starting to rein that in. Excellent. That's a very good thought, Rich, and I appreciate your comments pursuant to that. As we uh, work to wrap up here, is there any further thoughts you'd like to add? Uh, or, or would you say the, share, the story that you nicely shared um, was, was an unfortunate situation that was over-prosecuted? And um, of course, the individual had the wonderful opportunity to uh, pay some time uh, on his vacation. Yeah, indeed. Um, I, I think uh, I think that I would I would agree with your summation there. But let me just add one point in in conclusion, and that is to to rectify the situation. I think we in this country incarcerate far too many people for things that shouldn't be incarcerated and to really correct. And one of the problems is once that has happened to a person, he is tarnished for life, not just in his reputation, but he is prohibited from um, doing many things that any ordinary person could do. It interferes with his ability to make an honest living. And I think what we need to do is to um, revise the law in order to expunge those records or at the minimum to remove all of those disqualifying uh, rules. Uh, if a person has stayed clean and had no offenses for a period of years, other countries do that. England, for example, after 10 years, your record is clear and you can go about your life. Uh, if we did that here, we'd put a lot of people back into productive, honest work. If you don't do that, some people out of desperation turn back to crime because it's the only way they can make a living. It is, it is so absolutely true of what you said, Rich, and I would underscore 100% of, of the comments there. It was a great wrap up. And I thank you uh, immensely for spending the time and sharing a great story. And then certainly your personal background and experiences that you've had along the way that can be very enlightening to those folks that have not had the opportunity to be within our justice system. So I thank you, Rich. I hope you have a great rest of the day and we will talk soon. You bet. Thanks, Jim. Yep, thank you, Rich. Right, I, 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 I may have screwed up in the beginning, not between our discussion, but I may not have hit the right record button. And then I look, it said in the cloud or on your computer, that might've been the first intro stuff. 
that that may or may not be appearing here, but I would say 90% of what we did should be on there. So yeah, I thought you did, it was great. Uh, it was, uh, we did it on the fly, Rich, right? The back and, back and forth situations. What, let me ask you just one clarifier, if I heard you right or not, and this is my, for my own purposes. With, did you say um, that, that this all has to do with prosecutors? Did you, did you comment on prosecutors that you feel there should be or should not be some type of a, let's call it a, 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 a toe for a toe or a limb for a limb? Yep. Absolutely. I recall very substantial. Sure. What's your thoughts if and I'm going to use a specific case, Mike Morton in Texas, he's, he's convicted, killing his wife, 23 years, he spends incarcerated, and all of a sudden, miraculously, there was some evidence that didn't come out, and, and he's found to be not guilty. And then they, and then I don't recall the element of the prosecutor, but he got the prosecutor got charged with something and this is the same guy that had to sit in court yeah he got 10 days and served five now yes Wow, yeah. Sure. No, I, Rich, I, I agree. I mean, you know, as a, just like in the, in this, in the book things, one of my big things is going to be retribution of prosecutors when, when outrageous things happen. 
Okay, because when there's no retribution, do you think the system will ever change? No, it'll never change. They'll just keep callously tossing bodies aside, moving up in their career. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm sitting here thinking what, because we just did, we just did this and now we're chatting about it, the aftermath. You know, what might be interesting, I'm not speaking about today or tomorrow, but it might be interesting some, sometimes to take a specific case and, and do a little dissection, you know, do this again, you know, and say, hey, let's talk about the Mike Morton case and let's see what we think about that case. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to absorb your time, but it was kind of like, you, you can do those things where you, you kind of dissect unfair situations. So we shall see. So as I continue, I really wasn't wanting to do podcasting yet. I wanted to learn all the processes of doing this, but I little did I know that it's a course requirement, which is okay. It's okay. Yeah. Oh, first, yeah, it's without a doubt. And I also got at least one or two minutes of background on you, <laughs> right? right, right, so. Sure. Well, I totally agree. No, no, I totally agree, Rich. Yep. Yep. You know, just getting Fricka up on Zoom was my biggest challenge. So, yeah, to your point, as you do more of anything, you get better at it. Right. So I understand. So I thank you for doing that. And then I'll, I'll, I'll see about trying to get you a copy of this thing. Um, but that's going to be once Jeff gets back here, if you know what I mean. Because otherwise, I don't, who knows what I'll do. So, but it, it, it should be, he told, he told me just, you know, when you do it, just leave it, <laughs> which I will. And then he'll, over the weekend, he'll do what he's got to do to post it up, et cetera. So, okay. Excellent. You know, you out and about tonight or a quiet night? Cool. Yep. They really do, huh? Yeah. Well, that's nice. Did she, did she make you that nice dessert for your birthday? Yellow cake, caramel, got it. Pretty, pretty tasty. Oh, that's cool. Good. Yeah, good. It was a good time. Okay. Well, then I will let you go. And I thank you again for doing that. Yeah, you bet, Rich. Bye-bye.